that the occasion of people sitting around the table of an important religious leader at an earthly banquet leads Jesus to clarify who will and who will not be sitting around God's table in heaven. The parable that we are considering today as we pursue this series of the parables of Jesus is the parable of the great banquet seems to have been inspired by a comment made by a dinner guest. The setting you will find if you were to begin reading at the beginning of Luke 14 is the home of a prominent Pharisee who has invited Jesus to lunch following Sabbath worship. And during the course of this little meet and greet, the conversation turns to things heavenly. The resurrection of the righteous rewarding of the just. And in response to this conversation, someone, we don't know who, but someone piped up, you find it in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Or as the message paraphrase puts it, how fortunate the one who gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom. Now it might have been a wise person who understood at that time that the most important RSVP of all is to this feast in God's kingdom. Or it could have been a peaceable person, because as you read that text beginning in Luke 14, you see that the conversation had touched on some weighty matters and might, for certain reasons, have become a bit tense. So this could have been a peaceable person who was trying to steer the whole thing back to a topic around which everyone would agree. Or it could have actually been a pompous person, some people have interpreted it that way, whose intent was to figuratively raise a glass to make a toast to themselves as Pharisees, as righteous, as the godly ones, the ones who for sure they thought would be dining in God's kingdom. Or it could have just been somebody who wanted to add his two cents all that was going on. We really don't know, and it's not important that we do know. The text leaves a good amount of room for our amusing, but what matters most is that the person makes a true statement, whatever the motivation. Those who find themselves eating in God's eternal kingdom will definitely be among the blessed. The question is, who will those people be? And At the risk of giving it all away, let's just say the guest list at the Feast in the Kingdom is going to look a lot different than the guests at this lunch. We're reading now from Luke 14, beginning with verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, Come. For everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, 
What you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. God add his blessing to the reading of his word aloud this morning. Let's walk through this parable, okay? Jesus said, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. A man we will come to see, so we might as well get that out there right now, that this man, this master, represents God. A man once gave a great, a word that means exceedingly large, a great big banquet. A banquet that would make Golden Corral look like a food truck. Okay? A shady maple feast. Now, how many of you have been to Shady Maple in East Earl, Pennsylvania? Only three, four of us. Okay, the rest of you, five. The rest, anymore? The rest of you, after service, get in your car and drive to East Earl, Pennsylvania. How many of you are going to the uh, Sight and Sound this spring, plan to go? Okay, I am going to guess that you may make a stop at Shady Maple, and I would suggest strongly that you do. Or if you have never been to this place, it is the biggest smorgasbord of food you could ever find. It is room after room after room of food, and good food. And for $20, they give you a wheelbarrow. And you just wheel around the whole place and fill it up. Maybe not a wheelbarrow, but you get a plate. And you can fill it up again and again and again as many times as you want. And I've said, I'm sorry, I'm not advocating gluttony, but maybe just a little bit for one day. At Shady Maple, you should go and gorge. It is a huge place with tons of food. It is a major league banquet hall. And this man here in our parable is putting on this great, big, almost incomprehensible to us feast. Now, in the Jewish culture of his day, before he would give such a feast, he would send out invitations to get commitments from his guests. That would be the first invitation of two. And it's necessary in that day and age when you're making such a uh, a large effort to put on such a grand event that you would reach out and, and let people know what's coming and, and get an idea of who's coming because this guy cannot skip down to Hannaford and pick up what he needs for his party. He can't just run out to the grocery store and grab enough fatted calves. Okay, It actually takes literal work to mark the number of beasts you're going to need, to corral those things, to slaughter them, to skin them, and to prepare the meat. It takes a lot of effort to bake all the loaves of bread that would be necessary to feed this multitude. You can't just go out and grab some vegetables from the produce section. You've got to plan how you're going to get the food and who's going to wheel in these great vats of wine that for sure would be there and necessary for the festival. So it takes a lot of effort, you get the picture, to pull off this great feast. And any of you who've ever pulled off a dinner party in your own home and entertained even just a, a few people or 10 people or so, know how much work goes into it. So multiply that many times. And that's what this host is up against and what he's willing to do. 
That is what he is doing. He sends out the invitation to get the commitment of the guest. Now, this is different than what you and I are used to. One of the things when we're reading parables is to try to take into account the culture. One of the disadvantages is we kind of lose the cultural norms. This is different than what we are used to. If somebody wants to invite us to a party, they're probably going to send us a card in the mail, and it's going to tell us where the event is, when the event is, what the event is, anything that's required of us, and it may even give us a little card to mail back, an RSVP. And actually, that's changing in our culture today, isn't it? Because there's this thing called Facebook, and you can do a Facebook invite, and you can save all your postage and all your paper. I wonder what Maine's going to do with all of our trees when we stop using paper. But anyway, that's a separate issue and not even related to this sermon. In this culture, two invitations, however, are necessary. The first to put people on notice and the second to summon them when the feast is ready. You see that in verse 17. The master says to the servant, go to those who had been invited. invited. And the purpose of his going is to summon them at this time. To say that the feast is on. Come for everything is now ready. So the servant does what he is told to do, only to discover that the guests who had been previously invited, they knew this event was coming. We can imagine they had logged this in their day planners. All decide that they're not going. All alike began to make excuses, not some. We would expect that no matter what, in any situation, because we live in a broken world, that some people who make a commitment to attend something may not, for legitimate reasons, be able to show up, fulfill the commitment, and get it done. But that's not what's happening here. All the guests alike, the scripture says, were coming up with reasons not to go to this party. All the guests are begging off. And though Jesus notes three in particular, we might assume that their excuses are actually kind of representative of the types of excuses and the attitudes held by the people who were making them. The nature of the excuses that Jesus notes when he notes three are actually quite typical of the sorts of things that have historically kept people from a relationship with God. And even today, these are the things that keep people from communion with God. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. These have me excused. Now, when we're reading through the scripture, I want to encourage you, take your time with the scripture and, and sit with it and think it through. Who are the characters and what are they saying and what are some of the cultural norms? And does this make sense? Because you know what? It's hard sometimes for us in our busy lives, and then we compound that with ideas like this. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, which is a great initiative if you have time to sit with the text. But how many of us have done this where we began this Bible through the year or some sort of reading program, before we know it, we're a day behind or two days behind or worse, seven days behind, and we're in the book of Numbers, gracious sakes, alive. And we have to sit down and we read through and we get through all those chapters and we tick all those boxes because we said that we were going to do it and we have no idea what we read. None, zero. And, and it's almost like we're not people of faith anymore. It's like we're expecting some magic thing to happen. That the word of God is going to come into us when we weren't really paying attention to it. And I'm saying, take your time. Sit with it. Dwell on it. Think it through. It would be so easy to read right over this excuse. I bought a field. I must go see it and go, well, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. I'm, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Here's why. 
right? First of all, I doubt that anybody would buy a piece of land they hadn't looked at. That's, that's the Brooklyn Bridge that gets sold over and over again, right? I mean, who's going to do that? That's not going to happen. I'm not saying a guy is lying. I don't know him. But, but I am saying that it's odd. And I think what's really going on is that he's excited about his new purchase. I doubt that he hasn't seen the land. But I bet he hasn't seen it through the eyes of an owner. You know what it's like to want something and then to purchase it and then to finally get your hands on it. Now it's mine. I think that's what's going on. When he says that he has to see it, he means that he really just wants to go see it more than he wants to go to this party. It's a piece of land. Where is it going? Think it, think it through. It's a piece of land. I must go see it. Where's it going? If I don't see it today, it'll be gone tomorrow. No, tomorrow it'll be right there. Two days from now it'll be right there. Next week it'll be right there. However long it takes, it'll be right there. And I doubt very seriously that it's going to be changed substantively. It's not like a bulldozer's coming in, knocking over all the trees, making a parking lot. It's not going to be changed considerably. Listen, what's going on here is simply a matter of will. Here's a guy who says, my will, my desire is more to go and view the thing that I have purchased than it is to go and honor this invitation and the host who has invited me to this banquet. The second guest says something similar. I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. I like the NIV Translation of this verse, it's a great one. I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. And I'm like, what's this, like a car? i got to go try out my oxen? How do you try out oxen anyway? I, I'm not sure, but I, I'm a little fascinated by it. i got to go tr try these big dogs out. Please excuse me. Well, we can read a little bit into this as well. Look at what he's bought, five yoke of oxen. Who is this guy? He's not a poor man. You know why? Because if he were poor, he wouldn't be able to afford ten oxen. And if he were poor, he wouldn't need ten oxen. One would do. A donkey might do. He doesn't need ten oxen to work a little field, which means he probably has a big field, and very likely that he actually has a plantation. Somebody who's buying this amount of livestock is wealthy. In fact, probably wealthy to the point that they don't actually need to go see the livestock. They have someone who could do that for them. And it's equally unlikely that he would be the one who is actually using the oxen in the field. Like the first man, he too is more interested in amassing his worldly goods and reveling in his own kingdom and seeing and getting his hands on the things that he has purchased. It almost seems better if he, if he were to say, I'm going to look at some oxen that I might buy. Even that, you'd be like, well, that kind of makes sense. But look, I bought them and I have to go examine them. Who buys 10 oxen that they haven't had eyes on? That's a sure bet for failure, is it not? Even then, people would deceive in the marketplace. Again, this is a flimsy excuse. It's just one part of a verse, and we might read right over it and think, well, no, these people are just busy, because we have that in our mind, don't we, in the American culture? Well, if you're busy, okay. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't laud busyness the way that we do. That's why we need to read this carefully. 
We should understand here that this guy just wants to go see what is his. And the common denominator of these first couple of excuses is simply materialism. That's what it is. Like the rich fool, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit uh, and infatuation with possessions, with earthly treasures, keeps these people from sitting at God's table. Now another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And everybody says, well, that we understand. Okay, two out of three, this guy gets a pass. That is not what it says, because this also is a silly excuse. This actually reminds me of Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he had sinned, and when he was confronted with that sin. Do you remember what he said? It started with the woman. The woman! which thou hast gavest me. Right? So first of all, God, my problem is not me, it's her. And second of all, if we want to get picky about this, you gave her to me. <laughs> so what I'm really saying is my sin is your fault. Right? This is a kind of a similar thing. I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. I can't make it. Now it has been said that the purpose of a committee is to share the blame. And one might say the same about marriage from time to time, because this is probably not the first time, and it's definitely not the last time that a husband or a wife has used the other as a means of getting out of doing something they don't want to do. Oh, everybody's all quiet now. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's up to me, I go. But you know him. You know her. You know her. You know what she thinks. All a bunch of liars. We don't want to go, so we blame our spouse. Yeah, they're handy. Anyway, it is a flimsy excuse. And we know this because, look, if marriage was in the cards for this guy when that first invitation came out, he really could have said, oh, man. That's ex no, that's the same season that I'm getting married in. I'm not going to be able to make that commitment. I'm sorry, he could have said it right up front. Never would have been summoned again. It would have been all, all said and done. We should understand culturally that there weren't pop-up weddings in this Jewish culture. Weddings were a big thing. Weddings were planned out. Weddings took place over days. And there were certain obligations that people were freed from for uh, up to a year because they were married, but not social things like this, not celebrations like this. So this just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense culturally, and it doesn't make sense when you push it. So again, what we're up against here is somebody who just has a different idea of something that they want to do, and they come up with a reason not to heed the invitation of God or this man to the banquet. We find here a common reason that people have for resisting God's call on their lives, and that is relationships. It is true sometimes that certain relationships get in the way of our walk with the Lord or our, of our even responding to the Lord, because sometimes we love people more than we love God, and sometimes we can need certain people more than we need God, and sometimes we yoke ourselves to people who have no interest in God. And I have seen this too many times. 
where the thought is, I will marry this man or I will marry this woman and I know that they are not believers and I know that the Bible says that I should not be unequally yoked, but whenever we quote scripture and follow it with a but, it's going to be trouble. I know what it says, but I am going to marry this person and I'm going to bring them over to God's side. I'm going, to, I'm going to see that they are converted. In my experience, it is almost always the exact opposite. It is the unsaved person who takes the believer away from faith more often than it is the believer who draws the unsaved person to faith. I'm going to have any time this morning to plumb the depths of that, and I know that's a deep thing, but relationships, just leave it at this, relationships can get in the way of our walk with God or even our willingness to respond to the invitation of our Creator. Now, maybe you're here today and you say, I really don't think I have a problem with possessions. I don't think I have a problem with materialism. I'm not aware of any relationships that are, are keeping me from doing what God would have me to do. So my question to you would just simply be to explore in your own heart and with the help of the Holy Spirit, are there any other excuses that you might be manufacturing today to keep God out of your life, to disobey or to not, it disobeys a strong word, to not do what you sense he's calling you to do. Are there any other things that you're just kind of throwing up their smoke screens that keep the Lord at arm's length? Because I think one of the purposes of this parable is to get us to humbly consider these things in ourselves. Whatever the reason that somebody might have for not responding to God, he says, come to dinner at my house. We say, we're too busy. We have other things to do, God, and they are things that interest us more than you. Now, when you say that out loud, it sounds horrible, but that is what is happening here. We have things that we want to do, and we're more interested in pursuing those than we are in honoring you. Marcus Dodds writes of this type of individual in his book, The Parables of Our Lord. He says, There is the person who is always thinking of what is due by others to himself, never or rarely of what is due by him to others. It's in it for me. What do I deserve? What ought to be coming my way? People think this way. What do I want? What do I like? Much more than what, I, what do I owe? Or what should I do? What is my obligation? Right? Friend, if, if the God who formed you bids you come to him, what do you suppose is due him? If the God who made you says, come to me, give your life to me, what do you think he deserves? Bottom line, the guests who made excuses... At RSVP to the invitation, but when the time came for the feast, they all prioritized other activities over the commitment they had made. In modern vernacular, we would say something like, this just isn't a good time for me. This just isn't a good time for me. But someone has wisely said there is no bad time to do the right thing. And even if it seems to you as though God's knocking on your door 
is inopportune or comes at an inopportune time, I want to tell you that's just not possible because God is perfect and because God's timing is always perfect. Granted, it does not always line up with ours, but it's still perfect. And that is why the prophet tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found. It implies something that we don't want to uh, think about, that there could be a time when he can't be found. And yet scripture talks about that. And that is why the psalmist says, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you would hear his voice today, in other words, if you hear God calling, if God's talking to you, you've got to respond to that. It is never wise to find a reason to duck the call of God. And we're going to get to that here a little bit, a little bit further down the road. But for now, let's just say, look, the meal is ready. Everyone has been summoned and all have declined to come. And that is a horrific insult to this generous host. So the servant returns and reports to him that all had declined to come. In verse 21, the master of the house became angry, understandably so, said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now we have to pause here again to appreciate that what this master just suggested or actually commanded his servant to do would have been unheard of in that culture. It's just not something that would have happened. This is one of the twists in the story. As we read through the parables, we understand they have twists for us, but if we read through them from the lens of the characters, we understand they have twists for them too. They never would have expected anything like this. As one person has noted, the big surprise of this story is not that the invited guests declined, but that those least likely to be invited were able to come. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, these all were, in a pharisaical way of thinking, deserving of their lots in life. If they had tried harder, if they had behaved better, if they had better parents, if they'd been more devoted, they would not find themselves in the predicaments they're in. That's how people were thinking. Remember when Jesus healed the man born blind? And his own disciples said to him, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, there was a sense that if you fell on hard times, you had earned it. And if you were suffering, it was because you had done something wrong. And therefore, there is really no reason to lift up anybody who has fallen down. That's why a priest and a Levite can walk around a wounded man on the road to Jericho. But that's another parable. It's the same principle. They're getting what they deserve. Why would anybody bring them into their house? Why would anybody invite them? to a celebratory feast. That was the mindset that in order, to, if you bring these people in, if you bring in this riffraff, you are giving them something they clearly do not deserve. We might say that would be to extend to them a great That's what the master decided. And not only for those in his own city, because when the servant had done what the master said and brought in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, he returned to him and said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and yet there is more room. The city is canvassed. Every alley, every staircase, every doorway, under every bridge. 
all the homeless, all the downcast, all the marginalized, all the disenfranchised, all the overlooked in the city have been brought into the feast. And there's still room. I told you this was a big, big party, right? In a big, big house with a big, big table. Lots and lots of food. So the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my home may be filled. Go outside the city. Go even further. Go, go even farther into the dregs. Go to those people who are sleeping beside the dirty road. Go, go to those people that are camped out all over the place who have no better place to be and compel them to come in. The, the, the word in the Greek, compel, is a strong word. It means to drive. It means to, to, to drive, to exert even force or threat to make something happen. It means to necessitate, right? Make it happen. So the servant of this master couldn't think that he'd done enough if he simply had wandered around the outskirts and given an invitation. That wasn't his job. His job was to see them inside the guest chamber. You make sure they get here. His job was to drive them in. And we're not talking really about coercion and arm twisting here as much as urgency. That's what's being conveyed, the urgency of the gospel. The gospel ought to be urgent. And honestly, for so many of us, the gospel is not urgent. We have this thing where we say, well, we just want to respect people and we want to respect their decisions and we want to respect their point of view. And so we're not going to push anything on them and we respect them all the way to hell. And that's what the master is saying. Go out and drive them in. Compel them in. Make it necessary for them to come in. Wayfarers and the ragamuffins have to be compelled. Now one might think that they would jump at the chance to come at such an awesome feast in a master's house. But here's the thing. They did it for a couple of reasons. For sure... We, we, if we see this invitation to the banquet on par with an invitation, say, to salvation, for sure there are always some who want to stay where they are. They just don't want to move. They want to be how they are, and they want to stay there and their way of living and their way of being. The fact that there was still room at the banquet is proof, as John MacArthur has put it, that God is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. So there is a certain hardness in people sometimes. They are reluctant to go. But then there is another thing that happens in some people, and I think that's what's more at play here, particularly when you consider this society. Some were reluctant to go because they knew that they couldn't reciprocate the gift. They knew that they would have nothing. They were empty-handed. They were poor. They were destitute. They had nothing. And so they have nothing to give. So they have nothing at the door offer the host. And they certainly know that they have no means by which to host their own party. You see, and that's kind of the way it was in that, in that setting. That's why it's so significant that Jesus is sitting with a bunch of Pharisees around a table and watching how they take their places because their culture was full of this. I'll have a party and I'll invite you to my party. Then you have a party, invite me to your party. Both of us will feel important and special because we go to parties. 
right? I'm going to scratch my back if you'll scratch, if you'll, I'll scratch yours if you'll scratch mine. It's all transactional. It's, it's reciprocal. It's, it's just a propped up silly thing that happens. And now just think this through. It happens all the time. This isn't, this isn't limited to Jesus' day. What about Hollywood? What about the jet setters? What about the self-proclaimed high fashion people? This is their life. Going from one place to another in what one author calls hollow civilities. Meaningless. Uh, it, it, it's truly this. Well, I don't like you, but I'll invite you. And you don't like me, but you'll invite me. And we'll both feel important because we go to parties. And Jesus is trying to get us away from that silliness. These people had nothing to offer. They, didn't, they, they couldn't follow the way of the world. And you know what? It's a good thing because that's not God's way. It's not what God expects. So hear this. In God's kingdom, you are not invited in because of what you bring that is of value. You are invited in because you are valuable. That's why God invites you. Not because of what you bring that could somehow make God more complete or more satisfied. There's nothing you can do. You are not invited in because of what you bring that has value. You are invited in because you are valuable. You know, sometimes when we think of evangelism, we, we think that we have to convince people of why and how they should change. And that may be true, but I wonder if we might be more effective if we were more concerned first we're making, with making sure that these people knew they were loved, that they were valuable, that they were welcome. And we know that God loves them. And we know that God welcomes them. And the looming question before us is, do we? Do we really? Now, here in verse 24 is why no one should harden their hearts or reject an invitation when God gives it, there is no guarantee of another. We tend to think sometimes of salvation as this, this item on a shelf that's sitting there waiting for us to go grab whenever we want, and that all the timing is up to us. But the Bible doesn't teach that. We see here that you come to the banquet by invitation. If you spurn that invitation, well, the doom of those who spurn the invitation is plainly seen. Jesus says, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall attend my banquet. Again, that is why you open the door when God knocks. But what is this parable about? What are its implications? Let's quickly wrap up with this. We have seen that the master of the house is God, that the great banquet is quite obviously, the kingdom of God. We would see that the invited guests are the Jewish nation. Remember, that's the context. Jesus is giving this, uh, to, this parable to some Pharisees who represent that Jewish nation also, who are very confident in themselves. This kingdom was prepared for them, for Israel, right? So they've already received their invitation. They've already been put on notice that a banquet's coming, a Messiah is coming. Who is that Messiah? That Messiah is Jesus. So Jesus comes with a second invitation to say, now it's ready, now it's on, right? 
In Mark's gospel, it says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. That's what Jesus is saying. And what did the Jewish nation do with Jesus? They rejected him. John tells us, John chapter 1, verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And as a result, then, the invitation of the kingdom is given, is extended to the outcast, to the downtrodden. And it explains how salvation was extended to the Gentiles. That, by the way, is how you and I got our invitation to this party. I had all kinds of clever sermon titles for this message. I chose none of them. Um, I think it's labeled The Great Banquet. You know, original as I am. Um, but one of them was, how'd you get into this party? Right? How did you get into this party? It's because God reached out and invited me, the outcast. We say literally, according to the interpretation here, out to the non-Jewish people, but ultimately the Gentiles and to everyone, just as it was prophesied, just as God intended. This, of course, is a picture of the gospel. Is it not a picture of the gospel? That God invites each of us from a place of spiritual homelessness. Nomads, wanderers, exiles, apart from him, and he invites us into his house. And he invites us into his family. And he adopts us as his own. And he gives us seats at his table. So this parable teaches that the Jewish rejection of Jesus opens a kingdom to all who will receive him by faith. It is given in one sense to set the record straight when we go back to verse 15. Who's going to eat bread in the kingdom of God? Well, it won't be who the Pharisees thought. Won't be them unless they repent and receive Jesus. In fact, it won't be anyone who doesn't repent and receive Jesus. This parable is also given, I think, as a warning of judgment to those who are invited by God, but decline his invitation. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come unto him and sup with him and he with me. And it is clear from this parable that if Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, you ought to open it up. Because those who reject Christ will, as one person put it, have their choice confirmed and they will never taste the joys of heaven. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce writes this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Finally, this parable, I think, is an inspiration for us who profess to be saved and who believe that we'll, we will be at the great banquet in the kingdom the marriage supper of the Lamb, to confirm the truth of our beliefs and to know that they rest properly in the work of Christ, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and not on our own merits or anything that we might feel that we deserve or have earned to find favor with God. As a certain 
irony in preaching this parable in particular because it is given to people who are very sure that they already have seats at the feast of the kingdom. And as I preach this to you all at United Baptist Church, I'm pretty confident that most of you at least have made that decision and have those seats. So Jesus challenges the Pharisees we shouldn't think that this shouldn't challenge us. There's nothing wrong with being confident in your faith. There's nothing wrong with being assured of your salvation. I think the Lord wants us to be. And at the same time, there's nothing wrong with humbly evaluating the basis of our conclusions relative to eternal life. In other words, who gets to heaven anyway? How do they get there? How do we know? Get there, blood of Jesus. Get there through the grace of God. Right? Ephesians tells us that for by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? Not your own. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Gift of God. That is how we get there. And we can be sure of that when we have received that. I, I do think one of the implications of this parable also is for those whom God is calling to answer now. That if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, do that now. Do that now because the time is now. Today is a day of salvation. And we just don't know what tomorrow holds. So if you're here this morning and you feel the Lord is saying, this might be my day of salvation, or this is the day for me to get squared away, resist that. The Pharisees were very self-assured of their eternal state. You and I, well, we have to be Christ-assured, don't we? And we find this sort of assurance that we should be harboring in our hearts in the words of an old hymn. An old hymn named, is, is My Name Written There? And one of the verses says, Lord, my sins, they are many, like the sands of the sea. But thy blood, O my Savior, is sufficient. For thy promise is written in bright letters that glow, though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them. Jesus, taking those scarlet stains, made them No, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yes. Take a moment just to let this settle. You're with us this morning and you've not made that decision to follow Jesus with your life. And you would like to make that decision and you sense that even now your heart's beating a little bit faster, stomach's turning a little bit, you know it's a day of decision Then I would invite you as we are here with our heads bowed and our eyes closed just to raise your hand and say, you know what, that's me today and I, I need to be on the right side of things.